Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Five, four, three, two, one. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio. Rumination, 3CR's Rooming House and Homeless Persons Issues Program. Featuring information on health and housing services as well as live local guests, artists and performers from our unsung community. Join us at 12pm on Thursday on 3CR 855 AM. And thanks very much to uh, Jan and David from Published or Not for taking us up to midday. Uh, it's now time for the Ruminations program here on 3CR 855 AM, 3CR digital and streaming at 3cr.org.au. Ruminations is a peer homeless issues program and we broadcast live every Thursday from noon to 1pm. My name is Kelly and I'm going to be taking you through for the next hour so it's really good to have your company. And on today's show we're pretty delighted to uh, be playing an interview that I did um, earlier this week with a, a young squatting activist and young budding filmmaker called Jasmine who was part of the Bendigo Street uh, occupation in 2016 and for those of you who are um, not familiar with that, Bendigo Street was an eight month long um, occupation of numerous um, empty government owned houses that were compulsorily acquired for the East West Link uh, which never went through as you would know and then we're left uh, sitting there idle for up to two years. So as a member of the Homeless Persons Union, myself and others, and a, a whole bunch of uh, homelessness and housing activists in Melbourne uh, got together and we decided to start uh, occupying those properties to advocate for them to be put on the uh, public housing uh, register and to start uh, our housing homeless people. Um, so that was a pretty epic campaign for eight months in 2016. And Jasmine was a part of it and she's now going going on to make a documentary about housing and she's going to incorporate um, aspects of the the Bendigo Street occupation. So I'll be playing um, sections of the chat we had the other day um, as we go through the show. And um, so without further ado, uh, let's get into it. Hey, you're on Ruminations uh, with Kelly and I'm delighted to have here um, uh, this Monday morning um, uh, Jasmine who was part of the the Bendigo Street protest in 2016, the eight-month-long occupation that we were – some of us were involved in where we occupied a number of – empty uh, government-owned housing to advocate for them to be uh, put on the public housing register and to generally raise awareness about um, homelessness and the scores of empty housing that's just sitting around um, 
Greater Melbourne, uh, Victoria and Australia really and um, asking the question why isn't that being used? So thanks so much for coming in to the studio, Jasmine. Thanks for having me. So um, I guess first off, um, tell us, uh, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself in the context of um, housing and homelessness activism. How did you start getting into all that and why? Okay, good question. Um, So... In terms of activism, the first really big type of uh, housing activism that I did was Bendigo Street. Uh, The reason that I got into it was because I was squatting at the time. And the reason that I felt passionate about that general topic was because, you know, I lived in um, homeless refuges for kids when I was 15 because I ran away from home. Um, And, you know, I then moved into kind of this uh, community housing that was subsidised by the government that was for, like, you know, traumatised kids and I was living with other kids for for a year after that. But there wasn't any long-term solutions, obviously. Um, So that was cheap rent for a year for when I was 17 years old. Um, But after that, you basically were off for yourself. And I never applied for public housing because the social worker that I had in the refuge that I was living in said, there's no point applying for public housing because you'll never get it. So she was like, it's better to just go into this social housing program and try to get into the rental market. So when I did get into the rental market at about 18 or whatever, obviously that came with its hecticness and difficulties and instability. Um, And I never really had housing stability my whole life. Um, It just became a norm. And that that's acceptable to me, um, but that's because I'm like an extremely privileged p- person in a lot of ways um, in the sense that I was lucky enough to, you know, find this squatting community when I moved to Melbourne um, when I was 21. So I went to the Anarchist Book Fair and I found this community of squatters that were um, really supportive and really good people, um, much better than the people that I had been renting with at the time. And so luckily I fell into that and I really gained housing security for the first time in my life when I started doing that because I had community and because the way that people thought about housing wasn't in terms of uh, your portion of the money that you're putting into the house. So um, that's, yeah, squatting is really interesting in that way, but that's another discussion, I guess. So that's that's why I got involved in Bendigo Street and that was really the first kind of squatting um, political squatting that I did or um, the first type of housing activism that I did but it was really incredible because I met a lot of people who were doing that kind of work for a long time and I met so many different activists um, through that campaign that I still am really great friends with today. Um, so tell us about your involvement in Bendigo Street. Sure, so... <laughs> So someone who I was squatting at the time with, um, not exactly at that time, but just a little bit before that, um, Kat, uh, she was kicked out of a house that she was squatting in, in uh, Bendigo Street, Collingwood. And she, I used to squat with her in Carlton in this mansion with uh, a bunch of other people as well. And because we were friends, she you know, was talking about the fact that the house was owned by the state government. 
And, you know, it's only through the making of this uh, documentary that I've then gone back and interviewed her and found out more details about that story. But it turns out that Kat actually initially squatted on Bendigo Street because she read in an Age article that that street had been occupied, uh, sorry, had been acquired for the East West Link and was now Ghost Street. So she went looking in that street because she was squatting at the time. And she found this house and started living in it. And then she got kicked out by, she doesn't remember exactly, but it's like government officials or something like this. And they found out that it was owned by the um, state government. And then it was through Kat who notified the broader activist and homelessness and squatter community. Uh, Then we started to have meetings. And I was at one of these meetings where that's where I first saw you, Kelly. Um, I don't remember that. <laughs> I don't remember that. There was a lot of people there. Do you remember it was like in a circle? Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So there was a lot of people that I didn't know at the time then, but now I know all of those people and yeah, yeah. have done projects with them since. Yeah. But we had a meeting then and people agreed to occupy these houses as a political protest. Uh, and so that happened. I wasn't there for the init- initial occupation because I was at Confest. <laughs> but when I came back from Confest, uh, there was an event, the first community event that was held there. And when I went, I saw like, you know, 200 people maybe, like completely packing out number two Bendigo Street. It was flooding out onto the street. They had a film screening. Um, Javed was like facilitating that day. There were so many great speakers from Friends of Public Housing, Homeless Persons Union, Uncle Larry did a talk. Um, And I remember the feeling from that day being incredibly inspiring and um, energetic and passionate and great to see all of these different groups coming together. And that's how I started to get involved. Mm -hmm. And because I was squatting at the time, when we got kicked out of our, our squats, which inevitably happens, we came to the meetings at Bendigo Street and saw if we could be part of the campaign through that way. Mm. So we ended up a bunch of, you know, people who were squatting at the time who got kicked out, plus a bunch of people who had been sleeping rough, um, plus a bunch of travellers that ended up coming. Um, We opened up a house, number 18 Bendigo Street, uh, and that's where I, I was living for... Uh, a couple of months and being part of the campaign in that way. Uh, Then after Lizard's Revenge, we all went there and came back from Lizard's Revenge and number 18 had been changed into a kind of more quiet residence. So we started opening up other places in Parkville. Mm. And I guess that was my involvement, yeah. Let's break that down a little bit. Okay. Because I have the memory of you there and the things that you went through. Um, tell us a bit about um, some of the interactions you had uh, in trying to secure number 18 with authorities. With the authorities, yeah. the interactions you, that we had with the authorities. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, on, it's on film, like, it's, yeah. Um, yeah, very amazing. Yeah. So... And what did you learn? Like, what deep learnings did you, did you learn through having to confront the authorities? Sure. So we... When... So what happened was number 18 Bendigo Street was actually initially occupied by a bunch of like environmental activists um, and they got kicked out really, really early on, like within a week or two. So the police came over and told them to get out and they got out. So based on that, we were like, okay, let's reoccupy this house. And um, 
this time we won't answer to the police or we'll try not to answer to the police. Um, we'll just close the door and not, not open the door because then they'll be able to kick us out. So then um, we did that. We occupied the house. You know, there was a lot of preparations. We were coming up with different ways of locking up the house. We had to take away this corrugated iron that they had installed. Um, the government, I guess, or whoever was managing those properties hired these tradies to completely seal off the house from people uh, with corrugated iron. So we spent the night, you know, opening up the corrugated iron and working out ways to close the house off from the police and all of this stuff. And one night I... Um, someone called me on Bendigo Street and this was a really cool thing about Bendigo Street which was that you know everyone was always in communications with each other and if something was happening on the street everyone would find out so I found out that there was police on Bendigo Street coming to number 18 so I quickly leapt the fence of 18 because we had locked it and the police saw me leaping the fence and they started yeah interrogating me and saying whose house is that and, you know, um, give us your details, give us your name. And I was like, oh, am I, like, suspected? Because at the time there was a lot of um, discussions about what are your rights and what – so this was a massive uh, learning period for a lot of people who were new to this kind of thing. Um, and I had done a couple of direct action things before but never anything to this scale and it was definitely a learning curve for me as well. And we were getting, you know – uh, activist training from Melbourne Activist Legal who were telling us, you know, you don't have to give your name unless they suspect you of an offence. <laughs> so I was I was uh, trying to be really smart and being like, well, do you suspect me of an offence? You know, I don't have to give you my name. And they're like, yeah, trespass. And I was like, oh, um, <laughs> okay, that didn't work out so well. <laughs> so I changed tactics and I was like, oh, well, there's a lot of male police officers here and I'm alone and I'm scared and... <laughs> And so just trying to keep changing tactics to, mm. I guess, delay them um, getting me in trouble. And eventually, you know, Joel from the HPUV came up with, with his camera and mm. I was filming them and the community came down and there was a bunch of people gathering around the police and they were really uh, like off guard and put, up, put on the spot and just eventually they just left. and On a rainy night with flashlights. Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty epic scene. So you re you really that must have um, stood you in such good stead learning um, learning at that time what you went through like for your future squatting activities or life. Yeah, definitely. Mm. I learned a lot from Bendigo Street so mm. much, um, just about you know how to talk to police, um, how to you know make get the upper ground in terms of uh, like making the occupation or what you're doing political, like making the pol politics of it visible, I guess, mm. through banners, through community, through uh, people talking to the police, filming, stuff like this that was incredibly useful for my later life and I've gone on to do other activist projects since then that, I've used those skills and that knowledge from, mm. definitely. Yeah, and I think a lot of people did as well.
October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC. A 3CR supporter. Hello, we are Dachem Rachem from Free Ukraine. And you're listening to Free CR Community Radio. You're listening to uh, Ruminations with Kelly and a great guest, uh, Jasmine, who's in uh, who's um, in the process of making a documentary about um, housing. Would you say in uh, in Melbourne or Victoria? I would say it's definitely uh, in Melbourne, but okay. also broader globally. Even okay. um, a lot of the things we're discussing in the documentary is about yeah, general housing history and um, how housing is organised globally, basically, as well All as right. Melbourne. Yeah. Cool. We'll come to that. And uh, you're obviously going to incorporate some aspects of the Bendigo Street occupation in your movie. Um, you also had some uh, uh, escapades up in Clifton Hill during the uh, Bendigo Street occupation. Is there anything interesting to tell about that? Was it Clifton Hill or Parkville? 
Oh, Clifton Hill, Gold Street and all that. Oh, that one. That was yeah. early on, mm. very early on in the occupations, yeah. Anything interesting yeah, to share there? Yeah, definitely, definitely. So um, early on in the campaign we occupied a house because there was a young woman who was involved in the Bendigo Street campaign who had been coming to meetings and coming to Bendigo Street and she was, you know, very young I would say maybe 14 or 15. Um, She had a lot of difficulties finding housing because she had a dog um, and she was very attached to to her dog. And so a lot of these places didn't allow pets, which is really an extremely ridiculous thing when you think about a 14-year-old and the kind of, you know, attachment that they would have to their animals. I know when I was 14, I was obsessed with my cats and, yeah, wouldn't let anything happen to them. Mm. So... We opened up a place and we started living there with her, um, but it didn't last very long, maybe maybe one one day or something. And because this was early on, or I can't remember exactly how long it lasted, but it was a very short time. But the house on Gold Street was insanely beautiful. Like we have photos from it and it'll be included in the documentary, hopefully. Um it's incredible. It's like this basically a mansion, um, you know, shiny timber floors. There's a fireplace. There's a million different rooms, I've said, in, in perfect condition. Like I, yeah, there's nothing wrong with that property. And actually we met the person who lived in Gold Street mm. prior and we interviewed him. Oh, wow. Yeah, at the time we have a video of him. Oh, wow. um, and he was telling us that his house was compulsory required for the East West link. And then his family had to move out. And that was the house that we opened up and started living with to hopefully create a home for this young girl. And yeah, the police came over and forcefully kicked her out and us out. And because it was early on in the campaign, unfortunately, we didn't have a proper tactic to maintain that space to try to make sure that she wouldn't get kicked out and they kicked her out really cold-heartedly without providing any homelessness services. They could see she was a young girl uh, without giving her any time, which is the issue, you know, like if this is a state-owned house, which we knew that it was, why wouldn't you give her at least, you know, six weeks to find a place or why would you not offer any homelessness services or any kind of support whatsoever Um, And I think the answer is because that's not the job of the police. Like the police are not there to actually support or help people. It's to defend private property and to defend profit. Mm -hmm. And so that's what they did and they kicked her out. And Mm -hmm. that's what happened in Clifton Hill, yeah. Um, And uh, tell us about Parkville then. And um, I remember one morning you uh, locked yourself to the um, front door with one of those uh, bicycle locks around your neck. That was pretty epic. <laughs> yeah, that was a really funny time. We have we have a lot of videos of that. Mm. I think you were filming as well. Mm. And when I look back at those videos, I, to be honest, cringe a lot. But oh, why, is, why is that? <laughs> um, look, I think it's it's just changing as a person, I guess, and being being less of a confrontational person than I was back then. But I mean, what I did was really. Uh, good I think um it was just very intense (laughs) and I mean I'm glad that I did it but yeah so basically 
to tell the story, what happened was uh, people found out about more state-owned properties that were sitting empty in Parkville. Tons of them, right? So many. So actually what happened was one day someone, I'm not sure exactly who, and I've been trying to, through the interviews that I've done for this documentary, I've been trying to work out who found that list of all of these state-owned properties that were compulsorily acquired for the East-West Link. I just remember looking at this massive list. So someone found out this exhaustive list, pages and pages and pages of properties that were compulsorily acquired for the East-West Link that we went through um, pretty systematically to try to work out which of these houses had been sold to the uh, on the private rental market, which of these properties had been put up for rent on the private rental market, uh, and which of these properties were still sitting empty, which of these properties were uh, passed off to the Magpie's Nest, which Magpie's Nest is a joint venture between the Collingwood Football Club and the Salvation Army, and basically because of the Greens pushing in the Parliament that the compulsorily acquired East West Link houses be put on the public housing register, they ended up, um, I think the Labor government at the time, ended up giving 20 of the houses to Magpie's Nest. And one of the demands of the Bendigo Street occupation was transparency about how many of those houses had actually been given to Magpie's Nest. So we were trying to work that out through this list and through that process we found out that there was basically the Evo Apartments or something, which was this massive apartment, huge tower that was completely empty. So that was itself 200 houses that could have been housing the homeless. That was just sitting empty for no apparent reason. And we found out other houses in Parkville were empty that people at the time who were squatting and needed housing, decided to occupy as part of the political campaign, but also to house themselves, because why not if there's empty houses? Um, So one day I wasn't involved in living, in occupying that house, but a bunch of other people were. And one day, you know, we got a text saying, oh, police are at 81 Manningham Street, come down and support. So I was like, oh, okay, quickly just grab the lock just in case I don't know why and uh went down and saw that you know there were these tradies and there were heaps of people from the Bendigo Street campaign and broader community who had come down and were filming and the HPUV were there and lots of other people were there and I think the tradies with the real estate agents with the police were talking about smashing a window or somehow opening a door. There were people on the inside who had put up these banners, homes, not jails, on the uh, window. And so I thought a good way to potentially uh, delay the process of smashing that window would be to lock myself to the front door because maybe if I was locked to the front door, they would feel like it was a safety issue to sure. try to get into the house. Diversionary tactic. Yeah. So I And it worked. Yeah. <laughs> it did. Yeah. I yeah, I like to think it contributed, hopefully, to the yeah. police leaving eventually. For but sure. but it was cool at the time because um, you know, there was this detective sergeant Brady or something who people were like in contact with on Bendigo Street and people were telling these detectives or these uh police officers in Parkville no, like we're in negotiations with the state government, we're in negotiations with the state government and how true that really was about the yeah, negotiations. Yeah, it was pretty powerful. And lastly, before we move on, um, tell us about um, uh, you appeared on, on Channel 9. <laughs> um, tell us about that situation there. 
Sure. So one of the houses in Parkville was an apartment that we occupied and started living in. Um, But as soon as we opened up the house, and that's a really funny story how we opened up that house. Long story short is we went to a house inspection (laughs) because it was being put up on the private rental market. Mm -hmm. And we were like, if this is good enough to put up on the private rental market, why not give it to homeless people? Um, So because a lot of the discourse that they were saying at the time was these houses aren't safe enough, these houses aren't safe enough. And so we were like, you know, clearly it's safe enough. So we signed up for the housing inspection, dressed up in suits and wigs. Hilarious. So funny. Um, We just... I think actually Javed was supposed to do a distraction to get everyone out of the house so that we could just lock the door and start living there because we couldn't access this property any other way. And we didn't even need to do that because everyone just left the property and we closed the door <laughs> and locked it and started living there. <laughs> yeah, it was the most unbelievable, <laughs> um, yeah, most unbelievable thing. That must have felt amazing it did it really did yeah um but as soon as we opened up that well I guess you know as soon as we started living there uh there was this family who had gotten into contact with the Bendigo Street campaign saying that you know they had been couch surfing at their sister's house and parents house and they didn't have a place to stay and they also had all of these puppies and so we got into contact with them they were an indigenous family a mum a dad and a kid And, you know, I spent a couple of nights hanging out with them at the property and living there with them. And they spent a lot of time getting blankets and dishes and other things and preparing. But it was really sad because it didn't take long for the police to start uh, harassing us a lot and trying to get into the property. And so they didn't feel safe and they left as soon as that kind of conflict started happening with the police. But Basically, what happened was the police just decided to start trying to get into the house um, forcefully uh, using drills and trying getting locksmiths, just a lot of constant uh, harassment and bullying and aggression from the police. Um, A lot of the Parkville community and the Bendigo Street community were really supportive at the time and coming down and filming and talking to the police and saying, no, we're in negotiations with the state government. Because this was also actually right after we had gotten an injunction in the Supreme Court that had said that we had time um, and that we couldn't get evicted, but the police were still coming down Mm. and still trying to evict people. And unfortunately, this family left and they didn't get to live there for very long, which was very upsetting for everyone. Mm. And something about sending in uh, dogs and stuff, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. So, sorry, you asked about the Channel 9 report. Oh. So, yeah, basically, uh, you know, me and me and David who were living, I guess, trying to keep that property after the family left and trying to defend the property, um, you know, I was, like, staying there constantly on the inside to make sure that the police didn't get in. We were barricading the door and stuff like this. And at one point when the police came, they were, I wasn't home at the time because I had university, but David was in the home alone and they were trying to break into the door using drills and stuff and threatening to send gas and dogs in. And poor David was home alone and obviously there were no gas and dogs, but that's uh, still a pretty 
intense thing to say and you know for what just to I guess keep the house uh, profitable put it on the private rental market I don't know really to this day why that happened yeah and uh, just lastly too what's your understanding of like being down there in in Parkville I wasn't down there much um more in Collingwood, but uh, what's what was your understanding in in a visual sense and going around exploring of just how many properties were vacant, empty? Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't the same effect as Bendigo Street because Bendigo Street really was a ghost street before the occupation started because you had houses on both sides of the street, whereas in Parkville, this main street that had the empty houses had a big park on one side, and also the street was quite wider than Bendigo Street and um, I'm pretty sure it had like a median strip in the middle or something but there also wasn't as many empty houses on that street Manningham Street as there was in Bendigo Street Collingwood so in Manningham Street there was I'm pretty sure 81 and then there was the apartments which was 17 uh, number 12 sorry 117 and 117, which had a couple of empty apartments in there. And then there was the Evo Apartments, which was not on that street. I'm pretty sure it wasn't on that street, or maybe it was, but it was a visible tower somewhere. Mm. And uh, so it wasn't as visible as Bendigo Street. Um, I think a lot of the houses had already been put up on the private rental market and stuff like this. Yeah.
this is Houston out. I'm talking to you by telephone from the Oval Room at the White House. And this certainly has to be the most historic telephone call ever made. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM, 3CR Digital or streaming at 3cr.org.au. My name is Kelly and uh, I'll be with you up to one o'clock today hosting Ruminations. That's 3CR's Peer Homeless Issues Program. The time is now 12.40 and we've been listening to Jasmine, a young um, squatting uh, activist and budding filmmaker who's in the process of making a film about housing and uh, the Bendigo Street occupation from 2016. But before we continue on with that, um, I'll just let you know a couple of the tracks that I've been playing so far. We had our Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks earlier on and just then we had um, NASA Surf by Red Hawks City, a really great um, multi-instrumentalist from Tasmania, uh, Cam McLeish. How are you going, Cam? Uh, cheerio there for you really enjoying your stuff that's red hawk city and you can find uh, their stuff on Bandcamp. and uh we'll um uh, continue on now with um my conversation uh with jasmine uh, we're thanking Jasmine for coming on to uh, uh, Ruminations today to talk about um, her upcoming uh, film project um, about uh, housing and that will incorporate the uh, Bendigo Street occupation. So um, where would you like to start in talking about your, your project? What kicked all this off? So what kicked it off, I would say, it's kind of a complicated complicated. Um, answer to that question but basically um you know when the Bendigo Street campaign started I was filming a lot um I didn't know exactly what I was going to do with that footage but at the time I wanted to make a video for the campaign like on the Facebook or um to promote the campaign uh which was being done in various different ways by different people at the time. You know, we had cartoonists who were making posters and I wanted to support in that way. Were you a film student or something? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So I was uh, in Sydney before I moved to Melbourne. Um, I was studying film for two years and I did a subject which was documentary filmmaking, which I, you know, absolutely loved. And I dropped out of studying that degree because it was very fiction film focused and I wanted to go on to... Uh, do documentary film stuff. So when I moved to Melbourne, I started a different degree, which was international relations, which I felt like would help me a lot more with the kinds of topics that I wanted to discuss in these documentary films. Mm. So at the time I was studying international relations, but I was still very much uh, wanting to pursue documentary filmmaking. And I was completely blown away at the time by what was happening on Bendigo Street. And so, you know, I thought I could put my skills towards, you know, making a video for the campaign or something like this because the campaign was so time consuming and all consuming of all of our lives 24/7 um yeah. dealing with police and different conflicts and all of that uh we I never had time to make anything and my life was extremely busy and you know I 
became involved in more activist stuff after Bendigo Street and never got time and all of this footage was just sitting on my hard drive and I know someone else who was on Bendigo Street who was filming a lot as well. And, um, you know, I was going to go overseas earlier this year for a couple of years or something, but I had an injury while I was in Indonesia and had to come back and have surgery and was bedridden and couldn't walk and thought, oh, well, I'm back in Melbourne now. Like, what's something that I've always wanted to do that, you know, I can do now that I'm back here and I can't walk and I have all of this time and I finished my uni degree. So I was looking at my hard drive and saw all of this footage that I still had from Bendigo Street and felt like that story had never been told from our perspective and had never really been done justice by the mainstream media. The mainstream media was very superficial in its analysis of what was going on on Bendigo Street. But I think there's a lot of really, really important and interesting things that happened on Bendigo Street that highlight much broader political and social issues. And so I started writing a script and I started putting together a timeline and reading about, you know, narrative structure and three-act structure and reading about all this and went online and tried to find more people that would be interested in doing this kind of project, was contacting people who were involved in Bendigo Street to see who would be interested in being involved in the making of the documentary. And a couple of people did get on board, um, but because they're also such busy activists, they've dropped out since. So, yeah. But if anybody is interested in being on board, we'd super love to have anyone be involved in the making of this, especially if you were involved in Bendigo Street. So um, what film are you going to make? It's more than just Bendigo Street, right? Definitely, yeah, definitely. So the documentary is about housing and it's using the story of Bendigo Street to discuss broader political issues about housing and why there are so many empty houses, not just in Melbourne, but all over the world. Uh, obviously, we're going to look at specific policies in Melbourne, uh, but it's not just specific policies we're looking at, but a broader political trend, I guess, towards putting basically profit over human need. That's like the basic trend I think that we can see is happening all over the world. And there are specific things in Melbourne that we're going to discuss that resort, uh, result sorry, in that kind of thing, you know, mm. like negative gearing. Um, and we're going to be using the Bendigo Street story to show what can happen to houses that are being kept empty because of these broader political issues and policies and what can happen to those houses and what um, can we do as a community to try to change that kind of political trend, if that makes sense. Mm. What can we do as a community? There's a lot of things we can do. Um, so many things I don't even know where to start, to be honest. Uh, but basically the two types of uh, things that have been coming up in the interviews that we've been doing with people um, that we want to that we will show in the documentary so there's two basic tiers I guess of things that you can do and they can both be done at the same time which is a great part of it one of them is reforming the system using the same uh through the same political institutions and structures that we have now so that includes you know writing letters to parliament it could include voting which is something that everyone already does in this country anyway it could include uh you know, things like becoming a politician or going to council meetings or getting involved in your local uh, 
group, like political group that is advocating for these policies to be reformed. You can um, become an advocate. You can join an activist group that is looking at promoting and advocating for things like public housing, for like things like changing policies, like negative gearing, for things like land tax. These are all things that exist within our political institutions already. Um, and it's just working within those institutions to try to change things. Sometimes that takes a long time, but it's still definitely worth it. Like, and I don't think anyone can argue with that. Like things like increasing welfare payments, you know, things like uh, squatting rights, you know, um, these are all things that are laws that can be changed. Uh, and it does take a long time, but it has happened in the past through social movements. And the other thing, uh, the other way of trying to, I guess, change things or it's not reforming things, but um, I guess it, it can be classified or thought of as kind of like revolution or it can be thought of as, um, for example, just ignoring the existence of laws and governments and so I guess sometimes sometimes like squatting can be this kind of thing where you're instead of uh, trying to go through the laws that exist now you're going through illegal avenues so uh, a lot of like civil disobedience and direct action can fall into this category but a lot of direct actions and civil disobedience is also advocating or protesting for or demanding the change mm. through the reforming mm. kind of way. Mm. So, so like a diversity of tactics. Exactly, exactly. Of everything. A diversity of tactics. And a lot of people always say, not always, but a lot of people tend to, I think, get fixated on one of these things or they um, act like if you do one of these things, it compromises the other thing. But that's really something that... Um, we don't want to push in the documentaries um, messaging or anything like that uh, because really any kind of social change for the better is good, whatever it is. What will be the um, overall message of the film? Do you know yet? Well, the overall message of the film um, is going to be what people discuss in the interviews. Right. Um, and that's still working itself out, right? That's fleshing that all out. Definitely, definitely. Um, so it's all about what the people are going to be telling us in our interviews, but there are general trends of things that have been coming up. Oh, yeah? Give, to, give us a couple of those. Sure, no worries. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess also the interesting thing is what, you know, the interviewer has a lot of control over that as well based on the types of questions sure. that, that we're asking. And I guess the types of questions that we're asking is, why should people uh, break the law to um, try to create social change? Like, why was Bendigo Street justified? Why is civil disobedience and direct action justified? And that's a really easy, you know, um, answer. And a lot of people that we've been talking to have given fantastic answers to that question. And unfortunately, I think the, uh, a lot of Australian society doesn't, fully understand why that is a justified thing to do, which is what is so important for me in the questions that I've been asking these people, because I really want to communicate to that 
mainstream Australian public or I guess general Australian public that has, you know, voted in a liberal um, party, which is a lot of them don't realise why it is completely justified to do that kind of thing. And the reason is because, and the reasons that people have been given, giving us through our interviews is that, you know, laws are not uh, the be end and end all. It's about what is right and what is wrong. And the greatest time that this was shown was during the Nuremberg war trials, which was that, you know, these Nazi commanders when were told that it was their responsibility that to say that they were just following the directions of their higher ups was not a justification. So when we're talking about laws that are unjust, you know, um, speculative private property laws that, you know, colonization that has happened to indigenous people, uh, no at all um, public or widespread housing for indigenous people who are on the streets in Collingwood, which is, you know, their land, stuff like this. Why shouldn't those people secure housing for themselves right now when they can, when there are empty government-owned properties? Um, so one of the main messages of the film is going to be an inspirational kind of um, – like an inspirational um, vibe or atmosphere of, you know, what, what we can do now to protest and to change things. That's one of the messages. I think the other message that is really, really coming across through the interviews is that we need to be thinking critically about every single thing that exists in our society – we can't just accept things that the way they are. And it's not, you know, I don't think the documentary is ever going to come up with just one answer because there were so many different people in the Bendigo Street story that we're interviewing and broader people that we're interviewing that it wouldn't make sense to just have one answer. But all of these different people are going to be giving us lots of different answers, which will add to an overall message of, there are possibilities. There are lots of different possibilities and we just need to talk about those things and discuss those things and not just accept things the way they are. Like looking at homelessness and people sleeping on the streets and empty houses and not just accept that as an inevitable outcome but to think critically and be like, why is this happening? What can we do about it? And I guess, yeah, that's it basically.
bit of uh, surf and storm there. I was really enjoying that track. That was Vandemonian, uh, another track by Red Hawk City, Cam McLeish. Hey, going Cam down there in Tassie, multi-instrumentalist, and you can find his stuff on Bandcamp, Red Hawk City. And we've also been hearing from Jasmine talking about her upcoming film about housing, and she was talking about her involvement in Bendigo Street. Big ups to you, Jasmine. Good luck with your project, and thanks very much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for listening today. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, I'm Kelly. It's been great to have your company. It's time for me to get out of the chair and make way for Bill coming up with Living Free next from 1 till 2. We'll be back again next week live from 12 to 1pm and you can always listen to the shows that we podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash ruminations. I'll leave you with Ouroboros by 10tricks Point Never and wish you a great day and see you next time. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.